Why are we stopping at a barley field? Well, hello there, chaps. Documents, please. With pleasure. That's a migratory visa with stage three worker status, France, darling. He's with me. Come outside, please. Now, wait a minute. Sit down, Zero. His papers are in order. I cross-reference them myself with the Bureau of Labor and Servitude. You can't arrest him simply because he's a bloody immigrant. He hasn't done anything wrong. Stop it, Bert! Never mind, Monsieur Gustave. Let them proceed. Ow! That hurt! Oh. 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 You filthy Welcome, 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 welcome to the podcast that does, I think, what it says in the tin. It's best film ever. My name is Ian. And I'm Liam. And Liam, we, i just going to cut right to it, we have had an absolute uh, stormer of a week. I know, right? Like, it's insane. Like, we usually come on here and go, oh, it was really good this, like, we got ridiculous numbers this week, and... Crazy. The funny thing was, after a couple of days, like Apollo 13, I, I was kind of going, it's not all right. It, it's okay, but it was not really doing much. And then it just blew up. <laughs> I don't even know how to explain it, but we have passed the 1,000 listener or download number, Woo! which, if I'm being honest, Woo-hoo! I had that as a hope for three episodes from now. We might, if things went well, be able to go, we got to 1,000. And things just blew up. It, it, it's almost like it was like it took off into outer space, if you will. <laughs> so, as always, to anybody, if it's your first time downloading us or if it's your, do you know what episode we're on, Liam? Uh, 15th. 18th time downloading oh. us. We want to say. I didn't say 13. <laughs> you didn't say 13. We want to say thank you very, very much. And another big thank you for the second, I think, week in a row or second in a three weeks or something to friend of the podcast, Dwayne Smith, who keeps engaging on all the socials. And uh, I think we put down that we were recording today for Grand Budapest Hotel and he just kind of yeah. responded with... We got a yes and a heart. We got a yes and a heart. So and clearly I'm like, Dwayne likes this film. So this is an audible yes and a heart back to Dwayne Smith. <laughs> Thank you, Dwayne. Well, I think at yeah, one point called, called Tuesday is favorite day of the week or something like that. So, <laughs> so bless him, bless him. Um, so, um, I also think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about um, our other podcast or our side project. Unfortunately, Liam wasn't part of this episode, but we recorded, we watched, recorded, and released an episode on Hamilton all within twenty four hours. And I was very tired afterwards. <laughs> But I was not about to throw away my shot, as I determined. And uh, it's going really well. So if you're interested, if you watched um, Hamilton on Disney+, Plus, please go ahead and check out our other podcast, Talking the Mickey. And um, let us know kind of how that went for you there. And outside of that, we're really just here to talk about the Grand Budapest Hotel. But before we do that, we've got some perma guests to let introduce themselves. So let's have them do that now. Hello, I'm Ellie. And I'm Georgia. And Georgia is back after being away last week. 
Unlike Amber. a if we were up on on like the Apollo 13 spaceship last time, we didn't have the cutaways to how life was going off the ship back on, but Georgia was kind of like our Ken Mattingly. I'm sure she was somewhere going, if I don't ha- they don't have it, I don't want to have it and just kind of uh enjoying a very cool uh job that uh isn't doesn't really come with microphones attached to it though there's no <laughs> no no if we right. could get like some xlr inputs and usb and, and some wi-fi into the trees that would be great <laughs> <laughs> yeah i need like a generator or something yeah so let's generate some conversation if we shall about the grand budapest hotel uh directed by wes anderson just as a quick starter had anybody seen grand budapest before no. No. So Liam and Georgia had not. Ellie yep. and I had. I'd seen it several years ago. Um, I don't know when you'd seen it. Um, maybe about three years ago. Okay. Not really sure. And I've kind of got a relationship with Wes Anderson films where generally I don't get him. Um, Wes Anderson did the Royal Tenenbaums. Liam, you ever see that? No, I've not seen that yet. I turned that off. And I know some people going, well, mm-hmm. I, I could not get through it. He's got kind of a deadpan thing about him, and I'm not sure if I uh, – I definitely like this much, much better. But uh, it is Marmite. I'm not sure if it's one that I would have brought to the table, but it was no. one that one of our friends brought to the table. Um, our good friend Fiona, Fee, came up with this, Yay. and she forwarded some, some, some notes. And this is usually where I'd go, so why did you choose this? So, Georgia, I think I forwarded you those notes. Yes. Uh, can you sort of summarize why Fiona chose – this film and maybe throughout the film where she's given us some 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 points we can chip in with some of that stuff too but just generally what is it about grand budapest that um kind of makes her uh made her want us to review it and she seems to have a quite a few memories with the film i think she saw it in cinemas um and i think she said at some point that even um some of the like elderly members of her family have watched it as well and have all really enjoyed it um she really likes the style of the film um likes the uh like the story the hotel story and that kind of thing and the appreciates the different styles of comedy that go in throughout it as well and it's escapism that it presents it was it was interesting the comment about how it kind of spans generations and stuff like that and i think maybe yeah. um when you look at some of the central themes which we'll talk about in a second i think there's a reason why that that plays into it quite nicely mm-hmm. so uh if i can just do a little bit of context corner then we'll dive right in Officially, this is a 17-actor ensemble. Like, not Whoa. not like, you know, the guy who plays random background actor number four, but people who were, like, you know, named roles of a certain status, 17 of them. An now, all-star cast. I think an all-star <laughs> cast, yeah. Um, <laughs> maybe some less all-stars even others, but some since this is released have become far bigger stars since. Um, yeah, so there's that. Apparently, Wes Anderson has a rule where it's no ad-libbing on a Wes Anderson film. Like, you say the words to to, to the letter, correct? Oh, really? Which You wouldn't be able to deal with that, then. Me? No, no. (laughs) No, or you. It's because we both love our... Love our ad libbing. It's nothing about line security, I'm sure. <laughs> and that's, so <laughs> that's really interesting because I feel like I used to think that was just the way that it was, and that must be how films were done because you know they've been written by excellent scriptwriters yeah. most of the time. But then most of the films we've come up with so far, you've been like, oh, and that was actually an ad lib, and 
yeah, that, it's really that in- bit was improvised and it is really interesting, especially in the consideration of like Breakfast Club, where we see like whole scenes were more or less ad libbed. They just filmed and said, "What would you come up with here?" Because they had nothing but time, and you're just sitting mm-hmm. there anyway. What does that do? But Wes Anderson, I mean, you see the artistic vision that goes into what he does. I mean, you might be going, no, we're on a tight schedule. You'll say the line is written. And um, Ray Fiennes said he really kind of struggled when he first came on going, well, how do I present this character if I don't have – he usually works with some degree of freedom. You know, maybe he came up with that stupid laugh from Harry Potter. He went, oh, maybe that was an ad lib. <laughs> <laughs> but, but he says he really likes that sort of ad libbing ability. And Jeff Goldblum, who I really rate as an actor, wanted to change the word uh, the the asyndetic word a for the syndetic the. So rather than say, I don't know what the line was, but let's say rather than say, can I have an apple? He might have said, I want to change it to, can I have the apple? And oh. Wes Anderson was like, no. And like, like they went to war about A versus the. I was like, absolutely not. Did Wes Anderson write the script as well? Yes, Anderson wrote okay. the script as well. So, um, he's not precious. Uh, I think, <laughs> like a bit of an egomania. Some people are precious with their with their with their dialogue, and sometimes the dialogue is good enough, and you're like, don't mess with it. But I think. I don't know, it's Jeff Goldblum. I don't know. But then again, Wes Anderson is known for his deadpan traditional style, and maybe he's that sure of the words. I don't know. And so uh, it's an interesting film in um, the fact that it was, it was shot in uh, the eastern region of Germany, but it was a part of Germany that wasn't touched by the war because it was so far east. So unlike a lot of Germany, it's uh, it's like, 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 like centuries of history still all around you. Like They used to walk to Poland, to Bill Murray, um, had a story in an, art, an interview I read where he said they used to go to Poland for like um, nights out, you know, not wild nights out, but just let's go to the pub. They'd, they'd walk to, to Poland. And one night they walked to Poland and Poland was closed. So they walked back. <laughs> and I just kind of, I just kind of want to, and it was like, it was super wintry and it was, but they shot there because it had the look and they could get like a giant tax credit. If they shot in Germany, so I took advantage of that. But I kind of just want to see that's that's the documentary I want to see, like shooting this, but like walking to Poland in the middle of the winter with Bill Murray, and then having to go. Nope, sorry. It's kind of <laughs> like that scene from like Vacation where John Candy shows up and goes, "Sorry, folks, park's closed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so Poland's closed. But back you go." Uh, really interesting in that this film was shot using three different aspect ratios, and you guys know what I mean when I say aspect ratios. I think I do visually. So you know those black bars that come down sometimes on films and sometimes they're there and sometimes they're not? That's why at the beginning it says, please set your screen to 16.9. Yes. And so anything Uh, that's from 1932 was shot in the aspect ratio that would have been for films of that era. So if you released a movie in 1932, you would get 1.39 to 1. Anything that's modern is 1.85 to 1, because that's what your modern widescreen LCD TV and um, cinema screen would be. And then in 1968, to make that look even different, they exaggerated even more, and it's 2.4 to 1, so it's really wide with heavy bars that come down. Yeah, I remember that. And I just thought thinking about that's a really clever choice, and not something that I would ever consider. Then again, I'm not doing it for a living, but like really, really, like Wes Anderson thinks about things that I'm not coming up with, ever. I can't say I even noticed it. Okay. <laughs> no, I didn't either. Um, There's a lot of things I noticed in it. <laughs> did you notice the facial hair in this film? I oh. noticed this had a very high. This, yeah. this, this had a very <laughs> high facial hair 
uh, feature. So much so that Wes, and- Wes, Wes Anderson said, uh, I think we've reached our mustache ratio because all the male yeah. actors were told for the months leading up to it, do not cut your hair, do not shave. When you show up, we will style it for you. Wow. <laughs> and so they were just told us to go ahead and I'm assuming with the exception of zero. <laughs> um, yeah. Couple more things. Uh, it was the most at the time. It was the biggest budget for a Wes Anderson film at twenty five million, but it did recoup one hundred and seventy five million and did really well in Europe and Japan. Like it started off okay strong in North America, but then it like hit like a wall and just stopped. Um, and so um, it was nominated for nine Oscars, which led it tied for the lead that year in Oscar nominations. It did win four. It won best hair and makeup, best costumes best set design, and best score. And I don't know how to think... I really didn't note the score that much in this. No. No, I didn't notice it either. <laughs> yeah, so I'm sure people who are going, come on, it's great. I, I just didn't... I, I didn't. I think there is some vague idea. Like, like, like at the closing, like when the end credits coming on, I'm going, that's a nice piece of music. But throughout, I didn't really pay attention to the score. Which sounds terrible, because I was like gushing about Days of Thunder. <laughs> and the score for that. <laughs> there is something you want to bring subtle. up about the uh, music. Okay. A lot of the music, I felt, I didn't listen to, but there's choreographed pieces in the film where they kind of make noises like they're doing a dance. Okay. Or they're like um, chipping away together. Yes. A noise yeah, okay, there was a bit of that, yeah. They're escape together, they're laddering together. It yeah. made noises that made sound like that was some sort of choreographed music. Like cell block tango. Yeah. A different type of cell in block a, dance, way, maybe. That, that, that spoke to me more than what the actual sound. And um, on top of that, this won the Golden Globe for comedy of the year. Um, but there's three themes that in my research I found out that show up traditionally in a Wes Anderson film. And it's ones I want to come back to for sure at the end. And these three themes are nostalgia, mm-hmm. friendship, and color. <laughs> And yeah. <laughs> um, when we talk about nostalgia, uh, the concept isn't so much longing for an era that's past, but romanticizing a past that never was. And I think we can talk about that at the end of this film. I think there's a message there. So uh, let's dive in. Um, we learn all about this fictional land of Zabrowska, which I believe is named after a Polish vodka company. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's the light. Bison vodka, isn't Is it? it? The yeah. Grass. I can't remember what it's called. And the old Lutz Cemetery. And we're shown as we walk through, we see throughout, there's just pure symmetry. Almost in like in so many shots. It's just perfectly balanced left and right. And as we do a tracking shot of this girl as she goes through what looks to be a funeral, uh, a, a graveyard of some sorts. And she gets mm-hmm. to this uh, statue where it just says author. There's this really weird choral singing from like a little trio of guys sat on a bench. Yeah. And that's all we get of this woman. And then we're back to 1985. And um, we are told about the book, The Grand Budapest Hotel, which the girl did have. She had the book that said Grand Budapest Hotel. And we have the author in his older guise, played by Tom Wilkinson. I really liked the transition of that from seeing his photo on the back of the book into him... Then kind of narrating. Because we saw him in a statue film. form, then we saw him on the back of the book, then we saw him in, in 1985 version. Yeah. And he's kind of lecturing the audience. He's definitely aware of the camera about what's going on. And it, 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 he's talking about um, what it means to write. 
And that the one line that came to me especially was when you're an author, eventually the characters come to you. You don't go looking for them, mm. which is very interesting. And there's this, all this, and it clearly kind of lets you know this is going to be a bit of a, it's going to play with the with the rules of what you would expect because as he's doing his great lecture, like he he just abruptly stops and says, "Don't you do it? Don't you do it?" And this kid like shoots him with like a water pistol or something. <laughs> Yeah. Like a cap gun. I a think. cap gun, maybe, yeah. And then runs away, and the camera shows us that, and then we go back to a zoom in, and he's made his peace with the kid. And then we go in, and we go from him narrating now to we get... He starts talking about the time he spent at the Grand Budapest Hotel, but then it swaps from Tom Wilkinson to the unmistakable voice of Jude Law. And now we've gone from modern day to 1985 to... 1965, but not before we see this animated version of the Grand Budapest Hotel in miniature sort of form. This is one of um, Fiona's favorite bits of the film. She really likes the cartoon styles um, of parts of the film, especially the front of the hotel um, and little bits at the end as well. She really enjoys the little cartoon bit. I do, to be honest with you. Like the fact they had like, these exteriors that were made like out of like... They weren't buildings. The shots they were they they they, they were like art projects instead. Uh, I I liked it. I enjoyed yeah. it. Um, I I actually like that part of the film. Uh, I haven't got much more to add. Okay. I mean, here here's a comparison I never thought I'd make with Grand Budapest Hotel, Liam. Have you seen the film Spice World? <laughs> no. No. Oh, jeez. <laughs> There's a great bit in Spice World where they're trying to escape someone who's chasing them, and Meatloaf, who's their bus driver, not as Meatloaf, but oh. just as an actor. Oh, my God, i got to see this. And they're sort of talking about like how they're going to get away, and they're like, and all of a sudden, the bus jumps over London Bridge. And they go, well, it could be expensive to shoot that. And then you, they, they do the shot, and it's just like this cardboard makeup of London Bridge, and like a little, like, a Hot Wheels bus, like, kind of, like, goes over the bridge and lands. And they go, oh, it doesn't have to be expensive. And I think it's that kind of wink and a nod to the audience where we're going, okay, look, this is clearly a romanticized, not how much can you depend on this narrator or narrators, as this would turn out, because the whole thing's very much idealized and something that is clearly not. It's not a hotel. We, we can see it's clearly like a cardboard art project, but that yeah. sort of lets you go... You know, in this fake made-up country, in this fake... Ma- and it, but we kind of go, okay, the rules are slightly bendable here. Just a thought. And so, then we go to the 1965's version of the Grand Budapest Hotel. And this sequence was shot first. And it was shot first because the hotel was already in disrepair when they showed up. So they went, let's shoot these scenes first, and then we'll pretty it up for later. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, wow. there's no point making it look pretty and then making it look crap again. <laughs> Let's no. just shoot it. They said even though it looked it looked bad, it had sort of a charm about it, despite the fact it was in ruin. I think that's kind of the point that Jude Law makes, yeah. isn't it? As the author, when he's uh, when he's down there with, the, or maybe it's maybe it's the um, maybe it's the older version of Zero. But when they're in the baths together, I think they that sounded a bit more uh, sordid than it was. When they're in the Roman <laughs> baths, they, yeah. in different baths, <laughs> yeah. Um, I think they comment on how it, it was used to be really lavish, but it's still got a charm. And I think that's kind of a description of the whole hotel, really. And Jude Law's our voice to kind of what the hotel looks like now. And it doesn't look that good. But you can tell maybe it used to. And one of our cameos, who I haven't included in my little cast list, is we do get uh, Mr. Jean, who was played by Jason Schwartzman. Uh, as the um, absent-minded concierge, or the or the lazy, maybe absent-minded, the absent concierge might be a better way to put it. 
And um, then we see a small elderly man, and we're told that's Mr. Mustafa. Um, and we're told that might be f- familiar to some of you more enlightened people. And, of course, he doesn't exist, and so it purposely keeps us excluded. And it's really clever yeah. because it makes us want to go, oh, who is he? I want to be enlightened. I want to know all about this guy. And it's kind of what – there's a guy, um, a, a media theorist called Roland Barthes, and he called it the Enigma Code. And it's the minute that something's withheld from the audience, we want to know more about it. So like soap operas do this a lot. So if you're watching EastEnders and a character walks into a room and you might see the camera – the perspective of the camera from inside the room. And it'll sort of show them like, like walking in and like noticing, going, what are you doing here? And they won't show us. Instead, we'll get bump, 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 a do, 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 do. And it's designed to make you go, I need to know who that was. So uh, it's kind of that sort of concept. So I've now compared this film to Spice World and EastEnders. So <laughs> it's doing well. That's also the Brilliant. second time you've brought up Spice World during this Is podcast. That, and I'm quite worried. Maybe, maybe we have to do Spice World. We're not doing Spice World one day. <laughs> could it be the best film ever? <laughs> it could be someone's wild card. I'm not picking it. Liam. This film kind of reminds me of Moulin Rouge. In the oh, okay. um, uh, abstract part, yeah, 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 it is very abstract. I thought that and as very well. Bright. Yeah, yeah. It's the, the use of color. The use of color is very well done. How quirky it is in its direction style. And so we find out that he's the richest man in the country, or at least he was at one point. He's the owner of the hotel, but yet he sleeps in a servant's quarters. And uh, <laughs> then someone starts to choke, and the author's like. Yeah, then something happened, and I got the information. I grew tired, and I left. And he just walks right by someone who's choking. Because that's not a story. This little old man is the story to him. And so um, he's in the baths, and he's just sort of relaxing in this decrepit old hotel. And all of a sudden, uh, Mr. Mustafa starts speaking. I admire your work. How much he... Now, here's the thing. Can we trust this narrator? Because he's telling us the story about how this man said, Oh, you are a brilliant writer. <laughs> And let's not forget what he said. He said, when people know you're a writer, the characters come to you. And here we literally have the character coming to him (laughs) who wants to share his story. The author does say at the start as well, um, the incidents that follow were described to me exactly as I present them here. Oh, yeah. And (laughs) it's a little too specific to maybe go, is it true? Yeah, Yeah. it just makes you question it throughout, doesn't it? Well, did this actually happen? Well, there's a lot of this that I would say. I would really like it if this this whole thing's a little bit of a, can you really trust it? Yeah. And um, Mr. Mustafa refers to the hotel as an enchanting old ruin, too lavish for nowadays. And he's asked, well, how did you come to buy it? And he says, I didn't. But he wants to invite Jude Law to dinner so he can explain Following what's the conversation happened. in the baths. Usually it's dinner first and then you make your way to the baths. But there's, he's, doing this, he's doing this in reverse. Um, and then they start the story at dinner. And now we have... Old Mr. Mustafa is now our narrator. So this is our third different narrator. We had Tom Wilkinson. Then we had um, Jude Law. And I should mention that old Mr. Uh, Zero, Zero Mustafa, is played by F. Murray Abraham, which I think is quite interesting. And he does a decent job of it. So uh, enter Ray Fines as Mr. Gustave. Uh, the finest concierge there ever was. And you can see when he comes in, he's like flanked by five people, and it's just like he's got everything figured out. And there is an era of decadence about this place. 
you're sitting around going, this is when the hotel must have been in its heyday. Well, even just their uniforms are like bright royal purple, aren't they? And yeah. It's, there's just color everywhere. It's amazing. I did say of the promo um, graphics I've made up, the ones from Grand Budapest are probably my favorite because the colors are just so wonderful in the purple of the costume compared to the red of a lot large parts of the hotel or pinks. And I should say that um, after this movie was done, Wes Anderson sent many members of the cast robes in the style of the hotel uniforms. Oh. And um, Jeff Goldblum says he wears his every day. It's his favorite robe because the color is so good. I would as well. Um, And so there's a woman who Ray Fiennes is having dinner with. Uh, This would be your friend, Liam, Tilda Swinton. Tilda Swinton, yeah. What an amazing actor. The only actor or actress who wasn't Wes Anderson's first choice for the role. The woman who Ray finds as Gustave is supposed to be having this somewhat illicit affair with. I can't even believe it. And I want to see this movie instead. It was supposed to be Angela Lansbury. It was supposed to be Angela Lansbury. But she was committed in the end to a theatrical run of driving Miss Daisy, playing Miss Daisy, and therefore couldn't appear in the film because it was a very short turnaround for the film. So... I would so rather than aging up Tilda Swinton, you could just have Angela Lansbury as his. But we all know Angela Lansbury as either the sweetheart old lady from uh, Murder She Wrote, Murder She Wrote, or we yeah. know her from Be Our Guest, Be Our Guest, Mrs. Potts. <laughs> she is this sweet grand maternal kind of figure. And to see and think, how much different is this film if we have to look at Ray Fiennes going, "You're sleeping with Mrs. Potts. <laughs> That's what you're doing." <laughs> Like it feels like more oh, of a violation, no. doesn't it? It feels like he's being a little bit more slimy then, doesn't it? As opposed yeah. to a clearly aged up Tilda Swinton. So she's not leaving. And um he says, Well, let's let's go down. You always worry before you travel. Let's get you down there. And there's a great shot of this lavish. I love the elevator. The elevator was such a cherry red. And he starts saying this poem to her. And he's obviously done this before. First he makes her be quiet because she starts to talk. He goes, No, nope, no, nope, be quiet. <laughs> And he, continu- yeah. he continues to say it, and as he says it, like her mouth is moving along, so she's heard this poem before. You can clearly get this is his routine. And uh, she wants him, her last request is she wants him to take a ca- and burn a candle at the church for her. And he makes a big point of saying, I will personally look to this myself. Mm-hmm. And then he like slams in the car and says, go! And off they go. And he gives the lobby boy beside him the money. Says, buy the cheap one. Bring me some chocolate with, with a change. And if there's anybody on that, give it to the crippled boy who's doing the shoe shine. Yeah. And that's what the do. He goes, wait a minute, who are you? And they find out he, this, is a, this is a lobby boy who he has not hired. And in case you need to know he's a lobby boy, he's wearing a hat that <laughs> says lobby boy, which he wears everywhere in the early part of the film. Everywhere. Yeah. And... Um, so then we get introduced to the lobby boy who is Zero. And so we find out this is the narrator. Is is This is him as, as a young boy. And he is played by, I've got it here. He's played by Tony, Tony. Revolo? Revolori. Revolori. And Tony Revolori, originally they wanted an Indian teenager for this role. And they had like auditions everywhere, Indian or Egyptian. And they had everywhere. And they couldn't find anybody. And eventually they went, they widened the search a little bit. And I believe Tony's of Guatemalan descent. And it came down to him and his brother. Like, what are the odds of oh, that? Wow. Yeah, no. 
Talented family. I know that I've seen him in something before, but didn't realize till I did my research. I think George, I think all of us have seen this other movie that he's actually quite quite prominent in. I recognized him, but couldn't figure out why. So perhaps this is it. Do you remember Spider-Man Homecoming and Spider-Man Far From Home? Yeah. Yep. He's the jerky rich kid who keeps picking on Peter Parker. I was convinced he must have been something before this, but no, he's really kind of gotten bigger even since this. Uh, there's a rumor that he may be the villain in the, in the next one, because apparently if you go back to the comics, his character is actually manifest himself into a villain later on. So oh, that's cool. Yeah, it is kind of cool. Um, and so that was quite interesting. And so they decided well, we're going to have an interview right now. And we have like this montage of training about what does a lobby boy do? And he asks, eventually he asks um, Gustav, were you ever a lobby boy? And he won't, re- Gustav won't respond. You say, what do you think? What do you think? <laughs> but he says it with like such like rudeness that he's like, but he goes, well, everybody has to start somewhere. And I would think, and he just cuts him right, right off. Um, and then we find out through um, the narration that, um, Gustav was kind of a romancer of the elderly. He was, he, he, so the, he, he, he knew them all. They were rich, old, vain, insecure, insecure needy. Superficial and blonde. Superficial and blonde. <laughs> and he also refers to Gustav as the most liberally perfumed man I have ever encountered in my life. You smelled him before you saw him. And you knew of him long after he'd left. And I used to work with this guy in a factory. And this perfectly, it was like that aqua velva, like really cheap, like blue liquidy. Like just, like, but he must have just taken like handfuls and just, because you really could smell him before you saw. And it was a factory. I mean, there was already like some strong fumes in the air. But he cut through those. And I was just going, what is this? There's a really like surprisingly very graphically rude scene in this little bit as well. Is this when you have the the older woman with her boobs out? No, it's worse than that. I don't really w- want to say what it is. Oh, okay, I don't remember. It's, it's a split second of uh, a, a sexual no, act being, being performed, he's being um, pleasured by somebody's mouth. Oh, he's being yeah. pleasured by somebody's mouth. Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. Good. In a mirror. Okay. And so, and I think, but. You see, I kind of thought this when you had the older woman with her, with her boobs out as well. It's kind of going, in order to really appreciate the, the lengths that this guy kind of goes to, I think you kind of, I don't know if you need a scene like this, but it certainly helps. I think it's more the shock value. That's, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like You need to be shocked. Because I think, especially if you're like, how old's Zero supposed to be? 16, 18 maybe? Yeah, and you, and you partner with this guy who's in his, you know, late 40s early 50s but this guy's romancing like 80 year olds and so you kind of have that innocence of the 18 year old (laughs) coming against this guy who's clearly just like yeah part of the concierge's job is to sleep with all the old ladies i'm surprised it doesn't sort of become a new normal for zero and he starts sort of yeah romancing middle-aged women as well and so the thing that the thing that surprised me about this film is the swearing go on um only because you said earlier that everything is written how it's written. I there's some bits of the swearing I thought weren't needed, but there were some bits that I found actually quite funny. I agree with that. Um, I this is that much swearing. They actually cut a lot of stuff from this, but it wasn't enough to uh, stop. If you think about it, almost everybody who dies in this film dies off screen, and yet it still receives an R rating in the states. It's because of all the swearing. 
<laughs> so that's like getting like an 18 here, you know, just because it's got so much swearing in it. The first I, time I can't even remember I like, it. Yeah, you did. Um, and so um, we this is where Zero tells us about his day. Six days a week, he works from 5 a.m. till midnight, and he gets a half day on Sunday. And we see him getting up, and he's drawing. He literally draws on his mustache, which I thought was... <laughs> And this is the film for me. The film is a mixture of aesthetic beauty and just some absurdist humor. Yeah. The idea that he gets up and he draws on his mustache. And I'm going, is there a limit to how far that can take you? And I think maybe. (laughs) Um, And then we meet uh, Deputy Koufax, who all we're told is he is the owner's representative because no one knows who owns the hotel. But they know Koufax represents that person. And Koufax represented by, or played by, Jeff Goldblum. Who yeah. I didn't recognize it as Jeff Goldblum until you like mentioned he was in the class. Really? I don't particularly do really? lots of, I don't do loads and loads of research beforehand. But maybe I just wasn't paying. Oh no, that wasn't because of the research. I just I see Jeff Goldblum and I go Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, yeah, same. <laughs> I did the research after I'd watched the film. Um. And so this kind of started a trend where everybody in this film were just going to speak in their native accents. Yeah. yeah. We're not even trying. Every, which no. I think in this made, I think because it's a made up place and it's so like over the top and absurdist, like we said, I think you can get away with it. And being a hotel as well, you would have different. You would. You would. Although um, Zero is like Los Angeles, Anaheim kind of. <laughs> Like American, like he's not like you well, know refugee from Eastern Europe. He's just really soft spoken. I don't think it's an accent. I thought he had an accent. I, it's American. Sometimes I found it really difficult to understand what he was saying. Oh no, I think he's just doing an American accent. I've, 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 I've got a great little story once we hit another character talking about that. And so actually, it won't take long because the next character, and then enter Agatha, <laughs> who's a baker. But he goes, but we won't discuss that. And it's really interesting. Knowing now, because I wrote it down, not really thinking about it, and knowing what we eventually learn to know, I'm like, that's really actually quite powerful. Really, really quite powerful. And it's actually her. So Agatha is played by Sersha um, Ronan. Ronan, which it doesn't look anything like Sersha when you look up mm-hmm. the name, but that's because it's, it's Irish. Irish <laughs> and so I did actually go on and went, how do you, I went on YouTube and went, how do I pronounce this name? And thankfully I found it. It looks like it should be pronounced like Sarois. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, no, so it's uh, Sersha. And she was asked by Wes Anderson, what accent do you want to play this in? And she went, well, Ray Fiennes is speaking an English accent. And Tony's got like an Anaheim accent, and Jeff Goldblum's just speaking in a Jeff Goldblum accent. So she thought, <laughs> I thought I'd do an Irish accent. And despite the fact she's an Irish actress, this is the first time she ever got to play an Irish well, a, a scene in an Irish accent. She's American Irish though, so it's not actually her, unless she moved to to Ireland when she was young. Yeah, I think so. She was she was born in the Bronx. Her, her, oh, this her is native accent is Irish. This okay. is her, this her is yeah, this is definitely. her okay. native yeah this is her native accent. Yeah, because I saw a clip of her on ITV, Good Good Morning, and she's very much got an Irish accent. Yeah. And, um, But the irony is she had to wait till she played this fictitious baker in this made-up Eastern European country of Zurichova <laughs> in order yeah. to use her native <laughs> Irish accent. And so um, that kind of ends part one. And then we go to part two, 
and um, which was an interesting storytelling technique by putting it into chapters almost, if you will. And it's winter. I liked these graphic cards. That is something I did notice okay. was the different, um, the, the part one, part two cards. I quite liked those. I didn't really pay any attention to like what they were made up as. I just went, okay, we're switching. No, yeah. I just, yeah, I just liked, oh, okay. I liked them as a concept and I like what they look like. You like pop fiction then. Uh, so. <laughs> That's one I've not seen. So there we maybe go. Maybe I should watch it. Um, we find that it's winter. Um, and the Countess has been found dead in her boudoir. And every newspaper in this film, unlike a lot of films, the stories on every newspaper are 100% legit. As in, like, they've actually bothered to write the story. And they're mm-hmm. written by Wes Anderson himself. Mm-hmm. Wow. So He's it, a bit of an egomaniac. That's what I'm getting is. from this. I, think, I don't think he's, an, I think he's a control freak. I don't think it's ego. Yeah. I think it's control. Mm-hmm. And control. I can, yeah. at least if I do it, I know it's right. I really appreciate that attention to detail. Oh, it's great because whenever you watch like Cinema Sins and you go, actually, they, they freeze frame. Actually, if you look down here, you'll think you see it's a thing about fishing contests that just stop and it goes into a hardware store sort of sort of layout over here. So I appreciate when they put the time in and go, even if it's going to be shown for a second, uh, we're going to make sure we get it right. Liam? What I found myself doing a lot in this film is watching the background, how things were placed, how everything just seemed like that was there for a purpose, how it was all laid out right. Yeah. There weren't nothing ad hoc. It looks so precise, but then, as him, then understand why. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so we find out that the uh, Countess was found dead in her boudoir um, instantly. And he's he's told this by Zero as he's like romancing some other elderly woman. Yeah. In like <laughs> in like in like the, the the important suite, and he has to leave her there. And he tells Zero, pack your bags and make sure you bring a bottle of this and two glasses so you don't have to drink the swill they serve in the carriage. <laughs> and um and then he gets very nihilistic. And nihilism is kind of the belief that life is pointless. And he goes, There's no point in doing anything in life because it's over in the blink of an eye. And I'm like, this is not the message that the old man's supposed to give the young man who's just starting off on <laughs> life. It's yeah. pointless. Don't worry about it. And then he talks about how um, the, uh, the 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 countess, or whatever, was a uh, was an excellent lover. She was dynamite in the sack. Dynamite the in the sack. <laughs> and he goes, she was eighty four. And he goes, trust me, I know when you're young, it's all fill at stake. But when you get older, you learn to appreciate the cheap cuts a bit more. And then he makes it, it's like, it's where all the flavor is. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, And this is uh, the first of more than once where they get stopped outside of a barley field. And um, there's papers and they ask for immigrants. Uh, so that's their papers. And. <laughs> And um, Ray Fiennes is more or less treated okay. And he's very, he's still in his concierge mode. He's sort of being smooth until Zero is questioned. He's got a valid work visa and tried to be explained. And we see the police kind of overextending their uh, reach. And this is a metaphor that some people believe where the whole film represents post-World War II Europe. Mm. And what happens in the aftermath of um, the curtain falling over Eastern Europe and how immigrants are treated and how the gay community is treated and how um, and they, they all become extensions of this. And we see the characters represented in a certain way. And um, th- instead, they're just kind of roughed up a fair bit so much so that it's really quite interesting. I don't know if you noticed Zero and Gustav get matching nosebleeds. Yeah. 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 
and it's because there is a, even the even the bloody nose is symmetrical. The symmetrical, exactly, <laughs> and this duality between these two characters. And um, then comes on little Albert, Albert Henkels, leader of the police. And did anybody, Liam, I'm sure you did, but ladies, did either of you notice we have a repeat? Yes. Oh, did you? Okay, great. He, of course, is? He's Ed Norton from uh, Fight Club. Yeah, he's the narrator from Fight Club. So he shows up here. And this is where I went. You're just taking the mick now with... uh, with with the accents because Ed Norton couldn't sound like everybody else is like German sounding and then Ed Norton comes on like as American as can be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like he sounded less American in Fight Club. He's accentuating the 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 twang in this. And um we find out that I mean what do you think about this line? Because he he sort of makes the problem go away and then he says to Zero your companion was very kind to me when I was a lonely little boy. <laughs> mm, I think from what we've already seen from him, it makes you wonder, doesn't it? I, I, yeah, I, I, I think you have to go. That now, what does little boy mean? We we don't know, uh, but there is an implication here that much like um, Gustav takes care of the guests now, he took yes. care of the guests then. I think it's yeah. it's left open to your imagination, yeah. isn't it? It's definitely not kind of strongly implied but it's you've got enough history on his character to be able to go ah, is, is that weird and then as they go off um uh, gustav has one of his little lessons on life sermons on life which he used to do anyway apparently when they were working at the hotel he'd give sermons every day and he starts talking about how maybe in the hotel it's what we do we have a last gasp of humanity and he cuts himself halfway off in this sermon and goes and that's what we try to do the whole we're like oh fuck it and it's just sort of that's the scene and he just and i think it's that thing where you have gustav wanting the world to be a certain way wanting to be an ambassador of how that world should be and an agent of how it should be and then constantly hitting his head on how the world really is and how he can't be the um agent of change in fact as we find out nothing matters because the same stuff's going to happen again anyway in this yeah. case literally i appreciated it i appreciated yeah. the really wanting to be optimistic and like wanting to be the best in the world and like doing everything right and then just going you know what fuck it like yeah. i really appreciate but he it. fluctuates because then he comes back the next day and he's 100 percent back in yes i, I, I can yeah. be good and i think that's much more realistic than just the character experienced a setback and they were bitter forever I'm like, it would be a bit of a ping pong, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, and so then we get the house of the Countess, which mirrors the Grand Budapest Hotel and its layout. It had those stair, those um, oh, yeah. staircases going up in the same sort of way. Dead. It was a long sort oh. of lobby. And then I had the, the, the two staircases going up opposite each other. I didn't notice that at the time. I don't but... know if that's just because Wes Anderson is like, no, we're, we're just going to make them both look the same for the sake of I love symmetry. Or if he's purposely trying to go, it looks like the hotel. Um, and then, um, he, Gustav sees Tilda Swinton, the, the countess, whatever, and he tells her how great she looks and thank God she took his advice on the nail varnish, which looked so poor yeah. earlier. And my favorite was, and this cream from the morgue, you haven't looked this good in years. I want some. Yeah. <laughs> which I thought in was In real great. life. Yeah. In real life, Tilda Swinton is absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. That woman blew me away. Yeah. 
Liam's yeah. just dropping the fact that he's met Tilda Swinton well, there. That's I, I, I brought that up earlier. No, <laughs> honestly, she is gorgeous. Them eyes are hers. I could swim in them all day. <laughs> Um, and then we get to the reading of the will, which is why they're there. This is not before Liam and I both mistook one character as the villain from Moulin Rouge, which he wasn't. <laughs> yeah. um, and then we meet kind of a murderer's row of some secondary characters. We meet uh, Dimitri. And we meet, uh, oh, what was his name? Played by Willem Dafoe. Uh, one second. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, Joplin. Joplin. And so Dimitri is the son, and he's kind of supposed to be the main heir. And then we find out that everybody else gets sort of all her stuff, with the exception of um, the painting, Boy with Apple, which is going to go to Gustav. And everybody freaks out because all the rest of the crap is worthless, they say. But she has houses and all sorts of other stuff. But this is clearly, this is our MacGuffin. It's about the painting. An interesting story about the painting Boy with Apple. Boy with Apple was a real painting commissioned by the um, by Wes Anderson, and so they even had an audition for who should be the boy in the who holding the apple. <laughs> and it was by theater student Edmund Rowe was named. They made him try on fifty different costumes before they committed to one, and have to like get like pictures of him in these costumes. We're talking like furs and cod pieces and the whole nine yards. <laughs> 50 of them, and it said that it was very uncomfortable to get to that point. It was painted. very eccentric. He does. It was painted by a man named Michael Taylor, and the actual original copy of Boy with Apple now sits behind Wes Anderson's desk in his office. Which I think that's kind of cool. Yeah. That's brilliant. That's exactly the kind of memento you want from doing a film or a show or something, isn't it? Yes. And so they quickly decide we should steal this painting because they're never going to let us take it by, if we leave, we're not going to get it. So they leave. And on the way out, like, the butler says, can I help you with anything? And he says, yeah, can you wrap this up for me? At which point he does. And it's like we sort of saw here there's like a brotherhood or a fraternity of service workers. Mm-hmm. And um, they go ahead. It becomes more obvious later on. It becomes much more explicit <laughs> later on, yeah. And so they leave and they decide – we're going to keep – He's uh, Gustav on the train ride home says to Zero, I'm going to keep that forever. For as long as I live, I will hang it over my bed and I will always think of her. And then like a split second later, they've cut and they're sleeping. He goes, he goes you know what? We should sell it. <laughs> <laughs> we should go ahead. We should find the black market and we should sell it. And I'll tell you, we'll do, we'll do a blood pact and um, we'll have to quit our jobs and go on the run, and I will give you, for your help in this matter, 1.5%. Plus food and board. Plus food and board. And Zero kind of goes, well, no, I should get 10%. He goes, well, if you were a selling agent, you wouldn't get 10%. But I'll tell you what, when I die, you can be my sole heir. And all of a sudden you're going, for everything that Gustav is, and we did see this in an earlier shot, he's alone. Because we see Mm -hmm. he dines alone. He looks very... It looks very meager when we see inside his his residence. And there's a bit at the start with, with Jude Law as well when he's, well, narrating, I guess. Um, he says about how everyone was in solitude, but then when he sees Zero, he says that he, was, he wasn't just alone, he was lonely. Yes, that's true, yes. And so um, they replace it with a very, as they steal the painting, I didn't mention this, they replace it with a rude painting. And the official name of this painting, because they commissioned this one too, was called Two Lesbians Masturbating. (laughs) 
Nice. Which, if you think about it, both titles kind of explain they do what they say on the tin, don't they? Yeah, you want that painted behind you. Like it's it's up there for like days before anybody notices in that film. Uh, have that above the, the the cash register at Retro Records and Toys. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so uh, we also Same see time. that there's a confidential note put in the packing by Surge, but we're the only ones who get to see that. The characters don't. And so um, as they're going by. Uh, I said, <laughs> I have to go back to the promise if you can be my sole heir for a moment. And he said, you can have everything that I have left over. That's, of course, not including what we spend on whores and whiskey. <laughs> and he says, I'll tell you what, we need a contract. I'm going to write it up right now. And by write it up, he means I'm going to get out of bed and dictate, and you're going to write it as I say it. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, say what you will, if Wes Anderson's this big of a control freak, very, the combination of Ray Fiennes and Wes Anderson was very funny, I thought. Throughout. Absolutely. And they get back to the um, Grand Budapest, and it turns out the police are here, the elevator gangly dangly man tells him that. He goes, okay. And so they walk to the front, and we've got Ed Norton from Fight Club again. Um, and they said, we've got some questions. Uh, not questions. We're here to arrest you for murder. And he goes, oh, I see. This all thinking, you think I've done it. And maybe the single greatest. I knew there was something suspicious. I knew there was something about. suspicious because you told me the, 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 the cause of death. At which point, he runs away. <laughs> and the best part is the camera stays static from the perspective Brilliant. of where Ed Norton is. And we sort of watch him run and be chased by these two officers. And even in the distance when he goes up the stairs. I up think Fiona had a note about this, if I recall correctly. Yeah, this is one of her favorite bits in the entire film. Um, when they run away, um, it makes them laugh every single time they watch it to the point that they often have to watch it twice because they miss the next couple of <laughs> couple of seconds because they're laughing too hard at the uh, at him running away. I think they put this in the trailer. I think this was the big visual gag to try and get like a Western audience to go see it, uh, which is a shame because it's, sing- it's the singular biggest laugh, I think, in the film. I think he doesn't miss a beat, does he? That's just like they're talking. And then all of a sudden he goes, ah, then he runs. <laughs> he just runs. It's like brilliant. Where are you going to go? Doesn't matter. He's just going to run. Yeah, <laughs> just run. And so... Um, Obviously, at that point, they arrest him. We go to part three, checkpoint 19, which had this comically large door that this guy's knocking on. And then you find out there's actually a much smaller door, kind of Alice in Wonderlandy to the left of it. Uh, it's one week later, and we find out that Surge X has run away. The one person who can clear um, Gustav's name has gone, taken off. We find out that the the countess was poisoned by strychnine poisoning, and um, he has an alias, not an alias, he has an alibi, but he can't give up his alibi because it would incriminate a married woman who's at the hotel, and he can't do that. <laughs> so out of protection for this person, he's got to wait for... But can we take a moment and just talk about the prison costume? It's so good. I love his little hat. <laughs> it, it is really good. Now, it wins, a, like I said, it wins an Oscar for best costumes. And I think we have to consider why, because they're they're all gorgeous all throughout the film. But it's like this, like almost like out of a comic strip come to life. The giant mm. black and white it's very stripes, yeah. isn't it? It is very <laughs> Um, and we find out even um, we see a couple of examples that prison's not changing Gustav. And the first is that he re- writes a letter. And uh, Zero has to recite the sermon, although he says, 
And as he recites the sermon, we cross cut back to the prison and they've got Gustav at like a podium, like addressing the other prisoners, like he would address um, the workers of the hotel. And then uh, Zero insists they all get started eating because although Gustav's written a poem, it's like 47 verses long. So you might want to get started. <laughs> and then we find out that he's even concierging in jail. He's handing out the gruel. And he's trying to convince people to eat the gruel. And then when they go for it, he's like, I put some salt in it for you. It improves the flavor. And this big scary guy comes down with with a very visible scar. And he eats it. And he's like, yeah, it's all right. I don't mind that at all. (laughs) And uh, then we go back to Zira and Agatha, who are courting. And he's still wearing his lobby boy costume the whole time. (laughs) Like They're on like a a merry-go-round. He's got lobby boy on it. Um. And we find out that he proposes to Agatha, at which point I think they get into some funny business of their own on the upper balcony of a, look like a cinema, anyway. Mm. Yep. <laughs> and then we cut to a face-off between Dimitri and Kovacs. And Dimitri just wants Kovacs to say there was no foul play and get it over with. And Kovacs refuses to, um, to do any such thing because he doesn't work for the family. He works for the deceased. And this is when Dimitri responds by taking Kovacs' cat and throwing it out the window without saying a word. <laughs> Which is a really interesting visual joke. And I'd be honest, I was taking a note and I went, he just throw his cat out the window. <laughs> At which point, thankfully, Jeff Goldblum went, you just throw my cat out the window. I went, okay, yeah. good. I did see what I thought I saw. And then um, they show you Goldblum going to the window and then he switches to a point of view shot looking down. And that there's was like, awful. This kind of splattered cat. <laughs> Um, it's pretty gross. It is pretty gross. And this is where Zero comes clean with Agatha that he is an art thief. Well, just just once. Just just one art thief. But the deal is they need to use her um, bakery job to help smuggle things into prison. And so uh, she's eventually she's she's swayed by this. Um she does have, like, the biggest bedroom there ever was. Like, yeah, it's just sheets and stuff. But when the guy comes to look at her, like, it's massive how much space she's got. That's why you want an Oscar, isn't it? I guess it's because it's like uh, an attic room, isn't it? I guess so, yeah. And then Kovacs, we switch back to him, and he's handed back this thing from the coat check, and he's coat checked his dead cat. <laughs> I thought this bit was hilarious. We had a little like slip that said Persian cats deceased. Yeah. It was like, why? And as he's walking, he notices he's on the bus, he's on transit, and he notices that Willem Dafoe is tailing him. And so he starts walking towards this museum and then just throws the dead cat into the bin <laughs> as he walks by it. And so he bothered to coat check it, but then ended up with yeah. it in a, like a public bin. <laughs> And then Goldblum Kovacs runs away and kind of goes into this, um, gets from outside to inside in this museum, at which point then someone slams the door onto his fingers. This was disgusting. And four of the fingers, like, fall off. Not okay. And then for the next day, we find out that the meetings Kovacs was supposed to have have been postponed. In perpetuity. In, in perpetuity. In perpetuity, they are. And this is something which is an interesting choice. Because there's these two kinds of things, there's two kinds of narratives you can have in a film. And the first kind of narrative is called a restricted narrative. And in a restricted narrative, you follow a character throughout their day, and you don't know what else happens to them throughout their day. You just follow that character. 
and you're not given any more information when that character is given. So I'm trying to think of an example off the top of my head. Um, for instance, in Back to the Future, for the most part, we live with Marty McFly. We don't we don't see what Biff's doing on his own. We only we only see Biff when he's about to run into Marty and things like that. So that's restricted. The other one's called omnipresent or omniscient, where we get to know everything. Right. So this is I'm going to stop because at this point it seems like all up until this point we were living with Gustav and Zero, and we only got their side of it. And for some reason they decided to show us a couple of side plots with Kovacs and and I guess it was just to establish the danger that um, Willem Dafoe's character presents mm. Mm. but it was interesting so. that we don't go back to Dimitri really ever again until he comes back to the hotel there's a bit with Dimitri and the sisters when he discovers the painting yeah that's true I don't know how it took them that long to discover the no. painting but but for the most part we do live with those two characters um and then we go to the, I don't know, I didn't really care, if I'm getting ahead of myself here, for the whole prison break narrative. No, I didn't. I actually quite like Okay, because this is where my whole thing about being absurdist kind of got to me. Because they begin the, and they've been digging kind of Shawshank Redemption-y, like, rather than a wall, they've yeah. been digging in the floor with these spoons and stuff. Yeah. And you find out like a massive hole they've built, which is fine. And did you notice that Harvey Keitel was the leader of the prison gang? Yeah, yeah. I didn't. Rec- I, I had to look him up. I'm did like, I, I'm like, I know who this is. Oh, I thought it was the grandpa from Little Miss Sunshine. No, but, I've never seen that. but it wasn't. Was Harvey. It was Harvey, Harvey Keitel. Keitel. Yeah. yeah, I think it was the bald head that threw me off. But then they get down this hole, and all of a sudden they've got like helmet lights. Yeah. And they've got like this, they find a ladder. And of course, it's one of the, it's, like, it's like an ode to like old filmmaking. They grab a ladder, and the ladder's like, 90 feet so again, long. This is the scene where if you watch it, it's very orchestral in the way they're chipping away. Yeah. Together. The ladder makes the sound. They actually do a little dance thing. They go across um, thing into this window. I'm so... Kind of, I'm so... so is, is this when they're sort of like crawling over people in the beds and they're kind of doing like, like a little like high guards, step? God's Yeah. Great. Yeah. Because Wes Anderson went to show them exactly what he wanted to have done in the scene and he was demonstrating itself and he kicked one of the guards in the face and then the guy <laughs> swallowed a fake tooth. So they had to get oh, that replaced. Oh my God. <laughs> Which movie were we doing where it was like that? Was it... I think it was some, some Like It Hot when they were talking like how like to, to kick the matchstick out of his mouth or something like oh, that, yeah. <laughs> the toothpick. Yeah. And it was like he kicked him in the face. Like it's the same kind of thing. <laughs> It'll be fine. Watch, I'll do it. Whoops. And they had this like never ending like, like rope ladder that they somehow discover. Yeah. And it's like, oh, it, it, you know, uh, I just, I just, yeah, the whole film's absurd. I so know it is. Kind of goes with I, this is, I guess this, I think I started to turn on the absurd of the year around here. I think it's because it's extended absurdity, so it's not just one little silly thing, but it's an entire sequence. I guess I don't. I don't mind the absurd the absurdity when it's in the hotel, because the hotel to me is like the area of like kind of magic, if you will. Yeah. Like silliness can can because it's it's an institution. Like whose workplace isn't a little bit absurdist, right? But then we stretch it out to this. Um, and so they get out of prison, and Zero's there waiting for them. And um, for some reason, Harvey Keitel slaps Zero. Yes. I, I hope this is improvised because that was a hell of a slap. I got news for you. It wasn't improvised. And I only know oh, this because I know it took over 40 takes to get the slap right. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. that, oh, 
I felt every inch of that. I hope that wasn't some sort of hazing thing for the, for the, for the new kid, because it was, yeah, over 40 takes of Kaitel slapping this kid. And to his credit, he doesn't react at all. No, he doesn't. <laughs> and this is where we find out that all the things that um, Gustav would expect Zero to have brought or arranged, there's no safe house, there's no costumes or fake noses, there's not even any panache for him to spray on himself liberally. And he really goes off and says, you are a complete waste. You've moved to a, to, to a new country and you don't even meet Trot want to be a contributing member of society. How could you do this? And this is where you find out Zero's story of it. He's a refugee and his homeland was war-torn. And they've shot this in something that we call a two-shot, meaning that they both appear more or less in profile and they're like evenly distributing the space in the frame. And you do that when people are equals in some capacity. It could be a hero and a villain. It could be a romantic thing. It could be friends. And I think this exists here because this is the scene where these two become equals. I called it Moulin Rouge montage. The Moulin Rouge montage? Yeah. How so? Because there's so much going on behind. Oh, there is that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. What's going on behind them? I think you missed this. They, I don't know what they were doing with the driver of the van. They kept oh, getting out and like kept... running around and Yeah, no, yeah. sorry, I did I did notice that. I forgot about it. And that's like, yeah, weird. Yeah. <laughs> but I quite like Yeah, we never came back to that, did we, of what they were actually doing. And there's an effect called a, a, a vignette effect. And what a vignette effect is, is it's like when you sort of have like a almost like a circle of light where the characters are and everything around the the perimeter is almost like a bit dark. Do you, know what I'm, do you know what I'm saying? There was so much. Do it on your iPhone. Yes, there was, I was so. Just gonna say, I think there's well, an Instagram filter. I used it. <laughs> I used it for for the for the Twelfth Night promo stuff. But um, but there was so much of it in this. So so much of it in this, especially this scene. And you even get the line. In case my little idea about the, about the two shot and the quality wasn't enough, I believe um, I don't know if it was Zero or if it was Gustav, but one of them say we're we're brothers. And that was that. So um, then we find out that Kovacs is dead. Uh, he was missing four fingers. In case you needed proof of that anymore, we show the fingerprint card with the four fingers missing, <laughs> which was a fun visual joke. I'll give him that. Yeah. And so we now go into part four of a society of the crossed keys. And this is where um, Gustav reaches out for help and basically comes across a secret society of concierges. Um, all basically with hotel front desks, concierge desks laid out the same with just slightly different color palettes and all of whom have to leave their existing duty so that a lobby boy can carry on with what they were doing. And this is everything yeah. from like making soup to performing CPR on someone. Yeah. But the first concierge was easily the most famous concierge, and this is Bill Murray. Love Bill Murray. I love Bill Murray. Is he all that? Sp- I saw something that said I read a review for this that said he stole the show. I'm like, he wasn't in it long enough no, to steal didn't. the show. <laughs> no, he went in long enough to steal the show. I, I was expecting more from him. But... I didn't even notice that it was Bill Murray. So I don't know who Bill Murray is. Groundhog Day. Not Groundhog seen either Day. of those. Oh, really? Okay. Um, <laughs> and then we find out the plot thickens, and they go. I think actually going to like the, the etymology about like why. Where does the plot thickens come from? Is it a suit metaphor or something? And then Surge is, we find out that they've found Surge. Bill Murray picks them up and says, we found Surge. He's located here. And by the way, and he produces some panache. And he squirts himself by he being uh, Gustav. And then he offers it to Zero. 
and Zero, and this is where you get to see they are. He is treating him like like a best friend, like a brother, like an equal partner in this whole thing now. And you see him start to take on much of the um, mannerisms. mannerisms, yeah. And you can see this is very much gone from I'm going to teach you how to be a lobby boy to now I'm going to teach you how to live. I'm going to pass yeah. on what I know about being a man to you. Um. And I don't know. I don't think I've talked about it. There was a flashback. I don't think we must have passed it at this point. Where um, earlier, Zero has brought um, Agatha for basically the approval. It's a little bit of a test mm-hmm. to see, and uh, to see what Gustav thinks. And Gustav is like heavily flirting with her, <laughs> heavily, heavily flirting with her, and. Um, to his credit, Zero calls him out and says, stop flirting with her. Yep. Because <laughs> I'm not yeah. flirting with her. And then he asks, and then Zero asks Agatha, was he flirting with you? And she went, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so as he, she leaves to do something. He says, I'll tell you what, she's a great, she's great. She's flat as a board and she has a uh, birthmark on her face the size of the Gulf of Mexico, but she's great. <laughs> this way he goes, um, the girl with the club foot, oh, fuck. <laughs> um, that? that is coming up with oh that's when he meets Surge because that bit made me laugh out loud um, Dimitri now discovers that boy with the apple is missing and sees instead the painting of two lesbians masturbating and this is where we find out that um, Gustav wants to officiate the wedding and he's told again don't flirt with her and he says, no, no, I won't flirt with her. He's really taken aback, though. And Serge has a sister. We see a couple times they come back together. Um, they now deliver her head to the police in a basket. I thought this was quite cleverly done, though, because you've just had a scene with um, Agatha and yeah. wondering whether the, whether is it Joplin? Joplin? Yeah. Whether he is going and kind of following her. And you think for a moment that maybe it's, you see the newspaper article of girl's head found in basketball. Was it a telegram? Telegram. Um and then you think maybe it's maybe it's Agatha who's who's been yeah. killed, and and then the head actually gets pulled out, and you're like, surely not, and it's then it's the sister instead. And we're on our way to a rendezvous with the summit, and Gustav and Zero are headed there. We think Serge is there. We know Joplin's headed there, and we know that Henkel's the police officer. They're all heading to the summit, and so this begins a um, series where they're asked, "Are you Monsieur Gustav?" And he goes, yes. And they go, oh, get on the cable car. And then two cable cars meet up. And are you Mr. Gustav? Yes. Switch with me. Which, there's no way I'm doing. I'm terrified of heights. I'm not. There's no way I'm doing that. Yes. And then, then are you Mr. Gustav? Yes. Okay. Um, um, join us and sing. And then are you Mr. Gustav? And at this point, he stopped being like, yes. <laughs> it's like, confess. I didn't do it. No, no. Go confess. Which is where you meet Serge. And... Um, we find out there's a second will. A second copy of the second, second will. A second copy of a second will. And just as Gustav is losing his temper, um, he's been strangled by Joplin. Serge, not Gustav. Yes, Serge is... Which actually is an interesting point, though, because if you're Joplin or Joplin or whatever his name is, like, you have them. Like, you, you have access to both of them. Why why don't you murder the other two? Is it because you need them to go to jail? Is, is that what it is? I don't know. But this is where um, 
in kind of like James Bondy fashion, the villain decides he's going to ski down the mountain after he's done. And so um, Zero pushes off what I think was a statue of Mary. And why yeah, a statue of Mary it. is on a toboggan, I have no idea. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> I, think, I think it's just so we can be irreverent. I think it's so we can be irreverent. I think it's just more absurdity. Like, why would it be here? Because it is. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's funny. So they push it off and they go down. And this was, I mean, this was done with animation and miniatures and all that sort of stuff. And you can make up to your size if you liked it or if you didn't. I thought it overstayed its welcome a little bit. I think the bit where he says um, about the steering, that I'm fine to steer, but it's difficult. Yeah. But then they do like sharp corners. Yeah, they do. You're like, that's a Well, it starts off with a hill and then they go over a ski jump. Which, as a Canadian yeah. who has gone over some ski, not ski jumps, but like little downhill oh. sort of jumps you would make. Like, yeah. there's, no, there's no way. Like, you, you fall. Like, you, you, as soon as you get airborne, you lose your grip on that thing. It's all that's happening. It goes one way, you go the other, and you're landing mm-hmm. on your tailbone. Um, <laughs> and then they in like a bobsled kind of um, track, almost like we were back in Cool Runnings from the other podcast. Yeah. <laughs> and so... Um, they don't really show us how this happens, but Gustav ends up hanging by his fingertips, gripping onto snow. Yeah, so the I, Joplin comes point, Go ahead, Drew. At this point, I rewound slightly because I thought I must have missed something. Because I looked, I, I mean, I was I was taking a note or something on my phone, and I looked up, and he was just hanging there. And I was like, have I have I missed something? Uh, no, no, I hadn't. It just it does just jump to him hanging off the edge of a cliff. And they make sure we see mm. two legs are sticking out of the snow, who we then infer must be Zero. Yeah. Ellie? So basically, Joplin comes off on his skis, like, because he can actually ski, he kind of swerves out of the way, and then the sled crashes into something. So I think the idea is that they've kind of been thrown off the sled, and then he's oh. bit into different places. So that's how Zero ends up in the snow. and so then, Rather the than kick... Well, my whole argument about why doesn't he strangle him earlier is totally proven pointless here because, like, now he does try yeah. to kill him. And rather than, like, kick Gustav in the face, which you can totally do. Or on the or fingers. Stamp on, hand. stamp on his hands or do something. Or just, like, straight yeah. up lift his hands like, up off of the ice. Even more so, we've been shown he's got two guns in his jacket. <laughs> yeah. He keeps putting the guns back in, but he's not using them. So, like... He decides he's going to go for like some sort of like an action hero stamp you off the cliff thing, and it starts cracking and starts cracking, and then all of a sudden out of nowhere comes Zero, and Zero hits Gus, not Gustav. That would be a much different movie. <laughs> <laughs> Zero hits Gus Joplin from behind and sort of like throws him off, and that's quite funny. And then rescues this little you know 120 pound weakling boy, pulls this 250 pound man up <laughs> into safety. And then we find out that uh, the police are there, and so they make the determination, we're going to get on the motorcycle, and we're going to escape this way. And they head back for the Grand Budapest Hotel, which gives us the part five, the second copy of the second will. And the war has begun, and there's the Grand Budapest Hotels being used as an army barrack. And Owen Wilson is the new concierge of the hotel. I always like Owen Wilson. I didn't notice that way. Did you not? Oh, I noticed him no. within milliseconds. I, I definitely no, noticed I him, but I, just, I found it a bit weird how in this film there's so many small they're almost cameo roles, but they're Wes, not quite small enough for cameos. Wes Anderson's kind of got his group, and they're really loyal to him, and they show up in like all his stuff. So the Royal Tenenbaums was the same idea. Lots mm. of small parts. Um, And he runs the... Uh, and the officers all had these double Zs on their arms. 
They were called yeah. the zigzags in by like behind the scenes in the movie. They were the zigzag, but I think clearly this is supposed to have Nazi um, yes, links yes. to it. It's supposed to be like the SS. Yes, mm. yeah. yes, yes to the SS. Not uh, for the yeah. record, we are not, uh, not. We are not in favor of the SS. <laughs> no, no, to the SS. I'm just saying that the ZZ anyway, looked like the SS. <laughs> But, yeah, but, yeah. but we remain steadfast and are 100% against the SS movement, just just so we're clear. <laughs> just to be clear. Unless it's a boat, and then it's like the SS Minnow. That's a different kind of SS. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Did you want a spade? No, I'm okay. And then um, we get to Dimitri and to Agatha, who are both headed to the um, hotel to find Boy with Apple. Um, Zero has said that he has coded for Agatha um, answers to where the painting's located. In fact, it's like he's changed like a couple of letters in a couple of spaces, but outside of that, it's exactly where it is. Like, apparently, if you phrase it, it's like a dead giveaway for where it is, which kind of ties in with Zero's not the brightest young man, you know what I mean? So I think it, it plays in nicely. And then, there be- right around the edge. then there's a gunfight upstairs in the hotel. This was so weird. It was weird. And what if I told you somewhere, if you freeze frame that, there is someone in a white jacket also opening fire, and that's George Clooney. Really? What? Urban legend is that there's a timestamp, and if you stop it, there's a guy, kind of like, you know how, like, if you, um, like, Prince William was like a stormtrooper, right? Yeah. Apparently, George had, had a day to kill. And they brought him in, and he got to be in like a frame. I don't know if he's discernible, but he's in there. I found that I found it in two different locations, so I'm going to assume that it's true because I got That's two reports, ridiculous. slightly different That's ones. Cool. One was kind of like I'm not sure if it's really 100. percent There's a rumor, and the other one said, "No, if you stop at this point, George Clooney is there." So um, they have that. Um, Agatha, in an attempt to escape, is hanging out of the window. Uh, she's caught on some ledge. Um, in an attempt to save her, Zero also ends up flying through the window because he tries to, like, shoulder barge down a door that's been locked. And as he goes to run into it, sure enough, they open the door, and he apparently he can't stop his momentum at that point, and he goes all the way out. And they look up, and they see there's something written on the back of the painting, which apparently then everybody's just cool with looking at. Like, all of a sudden, Dimitri doesn't want to shoot anybody anymore. <laughs> well, I think he is surrounded by police as well yeah, so I, I guess. guess he can't really do an awful lot and all it shows is that if he dies due to murder if sorry if, if the countess died due to murder then gustav gets the hotel there's nothing in this which clears his name no serge mm. is dead serge's sister is dead we yeah. were told this is the lawyer who was going to defend him is dead i don't know how he gets off so anyway Another part of the absurdity. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Just the idea, but it's all over. And we find out that she was the owner of the hotel and gave it all to Gustav. Um, And so in the coda, we find out that Gustav um, is now rich. And he's just like everybody else. He's blonde. He's rich. He's vain. He's insecure. And he's needy. And Zero becomes the new concierge. And as this is going on, we get a small – they have a shot as well of Gustav doing the wedding. And we're told that um, Agatha and their child died a couple of weeks 
after contracting the Persian grip, the Persian grip, some sort of a disease, which now you could fix in a day in, in hospital. But back then it meant you were dead. And that's. And we also get told that Gustav wouldn't live to be old. And that we told that Gustav, the one thing he didn't learn was how to be old, the one gift he wouldn't get. And we find out that, again, now it's in black and white, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. And we strip, actually, let's think about this, in a film where color is so important and the vibrancy of life. And maybe one could argue free from embellishment, free from oversaturation, free from black and white. It's just the facts, right? Let's have it in black and white. And they stop in the same barley field as before, where they are brought on the train again. And they produce their papers. And for some reason of a time in between, nobody thought they should get some better papers for... Mm-hmm. Like they haven't really had a chance to, have he, they? <laughs> was supposed to be, I think it's supposed to be like years later, isn't it? Uh, I don't think it's years and years, but it might be like one year or so. Henkels even says to them, this is only temporary, get this fixed. When, when, when he writes his. Yeah. And they tear it up, and it's the same scene all over again. And he gets angry at the same place. But then we find out, no, he shot him. And we don't get to see it. But we're told that Gustav gets shot defending his brother. Now, how Zero is still in the country after this, I have no clue. Because mm-hmm. they were the whole reason this took place is they were going to get rid of Zero. Mm. So I don't know how he so- somehow makes it around. And then... Then we find out that Zero traded everything else he had for the hotel because it reminds him of Agatha, which is interesting because the building he keeps for Agatha and the tradition, you could argue, he keeps for Gustav. And Gustav is described as a man who was born. He's not a man from a different time. He's a man who belonged in a different time but wasn't that person. And so then we cut, zoom out and we go back to the girl in the book and the old man and the young man. You know, each, we, we zoom back out each step of the way and we finish with the, the, the girl leaving where she is. And that's kind of the end of the film. And the girl in the graveyard. Yeah. yeah. And if we go back to the questions I asked at the start and go, okay, is it about friendship? Of course it's about friendship. Is there color? Yeah, absolutely it's color. How much of this can we actually buy as being true? Mm. Not very much. What are the odds you get stopped in the same barley field twice with the same exact line for line? The only thing different is that you've got Agatha there now. Remember, we talked about nostalgia and wishing for things to be better than they were, overly romanticizing in the past. Remember, we're being told this through how many, like it's like a game of telephone. How many different characters does this get through before it gets to us? Yeah. It's a story told from, a lot of this is stories that Gustav told the Zero that then decays over the years. And then we get old Zero saying to the author. And the author tells us about it when he gets old. And then we have the yeah. girl reading the book. So how many layers of truth does this sort of get, or filters does this get sort of mediated it's through? It's almost like the Society of the Cross Keys, isn't it? With the, the telephone calls yeah. passing from person to person. Yeah. It would make sense that that's why most of the film is so saturated and cartoonish and almost fairy tale like It's probably because it's not true, most of it. Because it is this idealised version of what happened. So it looks idealised as well. And what does Gustav say on the train on the way up? You know, life is meaningless. It's over in the blink of an eye. Mm-hmm. And he's going to die mm-hmm. on a train. 
So, I mean, it's a really kind of an interesting kind of take to it. So, as we kind of conclude our scene-by-scene scene deep dive sort of thing, um, usual questions, I guess, usual order around, like, whose story is this? I mean, there's, there's really only two, two candidates here, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's both. Both Zero and um, Gustav, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think if you forced me to, I'd say it's... I'd say I'd be more inclined to say it's zeros, but yeah, uh, very, very true. I would be the opposite. Oh, really? Um, I would say that it's more Gustav's because Zero's story is kind of so pushed down from what Gustav has told him. So although Gustav, uh, although Zero is the one that's actually telling it, I think he's telling Gustav's story. Okay. Um, I don't know, George. What was your take on it? Because we kind of got Liam's on the fence. I'm on one side, yeah, yeah. you got Ellie on the other side. So it's like a perfect tie. <laughs> Be on the fence yeah. and tie it even more. Yeah, no, or, I, I or say it's like Agatha's. Um, <laughs> I think it'd be more interesting if it was Agatha's story. I'd quite like to know a bit more about her. Um, not a great film but... for women. Can I just say that? It's, no, it's not. For a film with 17 <laughs> people in the cast, there's a lot of dudes who do everything in this film. Yeah. Think about the villains. There's three women. Their job is just to sit over there. Yeah. And yeah, act yeah. stupid when they don't notice the painting switched. <laughs> you know, what does what does Agatha do? Agatha kind of, you know, she does what she's told she, by the men. She stays in the kitchen. Stay, stay in the kitchen, do what you're told, <laughs> and then get married and then die. And your death is of no consequence. Die because, during child or with, the, with but, an infant son. Because we're just going to kill you with, with a voiceover. Because the important death, the one they have to see, is going to be Gustav. It's a really bad film for women, come to think yeah. of it. Yeah, I hadn't thought, I hadn't noticed it while we were watching it, but now you mention it, I'm like, oh, that's really bad. Which is really funny because, you know, when I, when I, when I reach out to people and sort of put stuff out there, I kind of saw this one coming, but I, I had far more women respond and say, yeah, yeah, I really like that film than men. Or if men did mm. respond, they were a bit more muted. And the women, uh, the women who responded, it's very anecdotal. It's a small sample size. But it, it does reinforce kind of what I thought would be the case going into it. So, yeah, yeah interesting. Um, so, Georgia, are you 100% still on the fence? <laughs> 100% on the I fence. That so. sounds so. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm 100% committed to the fact that I can't commit. <laughs> yeah. Which, uh, Fiona says that she really like really liked um, Gustav's role. And really likes how he like almost treats the viewer as one of his guests, kind of throughout the film. Oh, that's really good. Um, and he kind of guides you through the story with like, extreme politeness and flattery, and she really enjoys that. And we actually see that it's the same thing that Zero, do, old Zero, does to the author. Yeah. And as a result, does to us, and so we're kind of getting layers of that. But I think the idea that we do get to the perspective of of we we are a guest in the hotel. Yeah, very much so. At least in the first act, especially when we spend a lot of it in the hotel. It's almost as if we are one of um, Gustav's little old ladies <laughs> being treated we are stories and things. At the very least, we are romanced and told not to be afraid. You know what you say? It's a bad film for women, but they're all having a good time. Well, it, 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 that's true. That's true. Um, so maybe we'll, we'll go off of what was said there by Fee and we'll sort of go off that. Liam, a favorite performance or a favorite character of some sort? My favorite character was Hilda Swinton. Is that just because you've met her and her eyes sparkle? No, no. <laughs> well, 
Well, maybe a little bit. So, so, um, so Liam's favorite I, performance was his good personal friend. It's between two people. It was um, her and Edward Norton. Because you know, Tilda Swinton like doesn't do anything after like like minute six. Like, well, even you know, to, but to be fair, in her scene, she's amazing. She's amazing in her scene. Yes, <laughs> I looked at her and didn't recognize that was her straight away. Oh, really? Okay. Until, no. Did her sparkling eyes someone, not give it away? And for someone who's met her, <laughs> if you're listening, children. Oh, sorry, your accent threw me there. So, someone who's met her. I thought you meant meta, yeah. like M E T A. I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm like, what's self-referential about this? <laughs> and if so, when were you that guy? <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, um, her and Edward Norton. I'll never see this today. Ah, Ed Norton. Yeah, yeah. There was something about Edward Norton's character that I I just like. Yeah. I, I don't know why, and I don't normally like his characters in film because I'm not a big fan of Edward Norton. But in this one, I like him. I am, and I don't know why. I don't. Mm. I don't go to my way trying to like. Apparently, he's very difficult to work with too. But uh, yeah, I, I like him in American History. American, so. yeah. And, we'll go review that one. And Twenty Fifth Hour. I mean, they're both really. There's, there's some great stuff out there. Georgia, yeah. you said you didn't connect that much with it, but was there a performance or a character that spoke to you more than the others? Honestly, I'd like. I'd like. I said, I'd really like to know more about um, Agatha. I think she connected to me was the most interesting okay. to me just because she's so quiet because you don't get to know what she's about. Um, and yet there's a little bit, I think it's something about how she's um, not scared or something like that. So she's obviously got some sort of history, it would at least suggest. Um, and I think learning more about that would have been quite interesting. There are themes of like youth and innocence here. And the whole, there's very much an idea as you get older, your innocence gets lost as these people you depend on kind of reveal themselves to be not what you hope they are. And I think mm. we see that with both of them. I think, you know, she's even more innocent than, than he is at one point, but then he in turn um, corrupts her to a degree. Ends her Maybe, naivete. Although, I don't know. I'm, I didn't take her to be necessarily innocent i took her to be more clever perhaps than some of the others are in in their escapades but oh apparently they actually had to make every time there was a baked good that was made they actually had to make it and i think she may have had some hand in that because she she did say it was very hard and frustrating to do that (laughs) (laughs) ellie um, well, I thought this was the obvious answer, but maybe not. Um, I love Ray Fiennes he in this. He is great in this. I think Gustav is is definitely the best character for me. He's just so funny. It's all those little witty comebacks that you're not expecting. And I, I think Ray Fiennes does a brilliant job. I'm going to go ahead. I mean, I think Ray Fiennes is the answer I would give, but I'm going to shine. Uh, it was ever that or Ed Norton, actually. So that's interesting. That yeah, Ed Norton, I like so much in this. I thought he was, he's kind of the guy going, what is what is going on here? I just, can we just do something normal? Uh, so I'm going to go for my choice then and go, Ray Fines can't do what Ray Fines does if uh, Tony Revoloco, Revol- I shouldn't have read his name. Revolori. Revolori. I'm just, it's, it's my handwriting. If Tony Revolori isn't the perfect foil for him, innocent, naive, soft-spoken, indecisive, and you, by pairing these two together, it, it's typical comic planning you take your two most different characters and you force them to interact for long periods of time and from that conflict comes humor 
And so we saw the innocence versus the experience that, you know, she's 84 to, yeah, it's all fill at stake when you're young. <laughs> um, these sorts of ideas. And then that, uh, say what you will, there's that great scene, great scene where he completely loses it and then like overcome, is overcome with guilt and even apologizes on behalf of the hotel and asks you to hold the hotel response. <laughs> but it's a great, that's a is great this, scene. Is this when he calls him an immigrant and yeah. has, yeah. And you've brought nothing to, to our society. And, and, yeah. yeah. Oh. And then just the absolute guilt of going, I've said the absolute worst possible thing. Yeah. And Powerful I, in today's day and age, isn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, on that note, is there a best bit? Is there a best bit? Something, a scene, a moment, an element of the film that you really liked? I like the escape. Oh, really? <laughs> the bit you don't like. I'll be talking That's about that in a minute. Like. Yeah, me too. <laughs> okay, so this is like the escape. Because of the musicality of it all, the, the comedy of it all. I don't know. It was like, it's like Keystone Cop. Kind it, of it, it. it was. I, I, would, I would agree with you on that. You know? And I, I, just, I guess I just didn't care for it, but. Again, if you watch it again, you can hear the musicality and they're like chipping away and the, the ladder coming out and them crawling and it's like a dance, musical dance. Well, That's I, what I like. I want to watch it again to uh, see the bit with George Clooney in it. Yeah, I, I do want to freeze <laughs> it and see if I can find that. Georgia, we should do that. was there a bit that you liked about it? Um, I do like some of the dialogue. Um, I appreciate like, quite some of the... Some of that absurdity I quite enjoyed. The kind of stuff that you don't expect to come, like the just, oh, fuck it. Like, that's really quite funny, um, especially because you don't expect it from um, Gustav or even to hear it in that accent is quite funny as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I quite like that. B um, really likes the uh, cartoon-style parts, like I said earlier, um, of the hotel and the funicular and the chase in the snow at the end. Um like she said, like she said, it likes it when um, Gustav runs away from the police. Um, I bet Fee loves herself some Tim Burton. <laughs> I bet she does because it's, people who are into this are always into Tim Burton. I'm always like, I hate Tim Burton. <laughs> <laughs> See, I like Tim Burton, but I'm not into it. Oh, okay, interesting. Yeah, she's essentially said that um, she really enjoys watching it. She thinks it's funny. She'd watch it um, several times. But all in all, she basically wants to stay in uh, the Grand Budapest Hotel when it was in its heyday. Interesting. Interesting. Ellie? Um, I think for me, it's just the humour throughout it. I, didn't, I wouldn't pick out a specific scene because uh, I did I did really enjoy it throughout. Um, so things like, I said I'm not going to pick out a specific scene now, I'm going to mention one. Things like at the start with Tilda Swinton when they're, they're having this really kind of grave conversation about how she's anxious and she thinks it might be the last time they're ever going to see each other. Oh, and then he goes, point. oh my goodness, what's happened to your fingernails? They're <laughs> disgusting or something like that. And it's just kind of the way it just flits between the serious and then the like, the absurd. And yeah. the the changes between that. And it's just quite, I suppose it's quite a dark humour in some places. Yep. Um, and things like with the with the cat, when he throws the cat in the bin, <laughs> like... <laughs> You worry, you think you've got the humour of that just when he throws it out the window and you're like, oh, wow, that happened. And then you see it splattered and then you see it go in the bin. And it's just like a continuation of these little bits throughout. And I just think it's really funny. Um, Though I don't in- endorse animal cruelty. Okay, so that's two things. It's animal cruelty and the SS are two things we do not, <laughs> we do not endorse. Um, I'm going to say um, Pocahontas once asked if we could paint with all the colours of the wind. 
And Wes Anderson said, yes, I can. Uh, what else you got? The color in the color and the symmetry, just every, the detail. And every time there was a new setting, it's like it had a color that was built around. So the elevator is red and we're going to focus on that. The concierge desk is like a pink and we're going to really find a way for that to work. Certain rooms in the um, estate of the Countess were like blue or black and there was a gray motif, but just like, not that it was kind of a grayish, like no, they, they, they went gray is the color. Now let's build the set yeah. and figure out how we can best showcase this. Right. Liam. Another thing I really liked was the camera angles and the camera shots. Sometimes they'd be looking like, not from the feet, but slightly above it yeah. and looking up. And yeah. then they'd sweep the camera around. It was very, technically, I really loved it. The, um, the aesthetics of it, I really loved. Uh, loved the movie. I wish I'd written his name down. Wes Anderson uses the same director for cinematography in almost all of his films. So I'm trying to go, is it a Wes Anderson look or is it this guy's? Who's, yeah, who's the auteur? In this, is it Wes or is it? Oh, I wish I had his name now. Like another scene that sticks out, yeah, when they're in the bunks, they got the people underneath them, and that's like a ceiling shot, yeah, and they're looking down on them, and then that goes to like a side view of them, then goes back to the ceiling shot. It's so good. I'm told it's, it's so good. Robert Yeoman. Uh, something I will say something I did like about the uh, jail scene. Is because we didn't talk about it. It's when they're, when they're going down the ladder and the one guy tries to rat them out, and that yeah. guy is like murdered by like the big guy with the scar on his face. Oh, I that might be one of my favorite bits. I, I appreciated that. that as like a form of like <laughs> that was that was a long term payoff to to like a yeah. joke or a moment or you know it, it's really interesting. Is it like a really dark take on his speech about humanity and like you know bringing things back to basic decency and how do you prove that well the guy with a scar on his face rewards kindness by killing the guy <laughs> yeah. so he can protect the guy who puts salt in his porridge i don't know i don't know um okay uh liam do you have like a bone of contention with this film um just didn't i weren't following the story i was more enthralled with the aesthetics of it and the camera angles i weren't really following the story and i had to concentrate to follow the story i was looking at the the imagery more and i i want the film taking on a journey not just look at the aesthetics and the imagery and that didn't for me but just i didn't really feel and gel with a lot of characters i didn't i didn't didn't care if they died i mean (laughs) I won't invest in them. That is bad. We don't care if they die. Well, it's, I was just, I was just took away with all the imagery. Yeah, that's fine. The sounds, the camera angles, and that I enjoyed all the way through. But with, yeah, I don't know. I like you know me. I'm for I the do. heart. I want to. You are, you are for the heart. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't. Have Georgia, speaking of uh, heart or lack thereof towards a film. What do, hey. what was the thing? I'm just doing sort of a segue. What was the thing that uh, maybe was your bone of contention with this film? Um, I think it's similar to Liam's. They don't give you enough character development with people other than well, it's to- it's told over time, so you don't get enough early on to care about what happens. I think well, actually, for a film that like sk- spans like sixty, seventy years, we actually have a really narrow like point yeah. of time actually yeah that's a good point and it it just so i don't particularly engage with it because i've not 
gotten to know these people. And like I said, like I, there's hints towards really interesting characters, um, and you don't get a payoff for that, and that's that's frustrating, I think. Um, that's yeah, that's kind of mine. Um, B says um, her only issue with it is the uh, cat cruelty. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Something else that... We're, oh, no, we already mentioned that. We're against animal cruelty. We did mention that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think mine's just like the prison escape bit. So the bit that really got me about this was why do they have to crawl through or jump over the, the hole of the guard bunk just to escape through a window to then go back inside again into the laundry room? Why couldn't they have just found a way to get into the laundry room and go out that way without <laughs> going through where because all of the guards are? Yeah, I, 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 just, know, yeah. I think this scene just felt really long and drawn out and it didn't make any sense so the irony to me liam is that you are saying that you need more of the aesthetic and the absurdist but then <laughs> ellie starts going yeah but it's absurd <laughs> <laughs> and i find that absurd uh my thing is actually i'm gonna parrot yours right back liam uh i the aesthetic was was was, was fantastic uh and the absurdity it, 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 it got me some laughs, but I really found myself going. Um, I really wish they were back at the hotel more. Um, kind of like Fee, I want to be a guest in this hotel, and you've actually removed me from the hotel. And I felt the whole prison in prison escape. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know if I'm sitting here going. Not it's only ninety minutes long. That takes a long. It time. felt like it dragged, and not much happens. And yeah. people are going to be, oh, what do you mean? I mean, you're the same guy, but uh, they go to prison, but then they don't go to, like, nothing is stakes. You go to prison, you, you get out of prison. You know, Because you know, we're all going back to, everything repeats itself. It's like secular, which mm. could be the nihilism of life. And maybe it is. And maybe it's that clever. But I just didn't have that as a payoff for me. Um, before we do our ratings, is this anybody's best role ever? Is it Ray Fiennes' best Ooh. role ever? I've written down Rafe Fines with a question mark, but I'm aware that he is in The English Patient and Schindler's List, which are both massive films, and I haven't seen either of those. I haven't seen Schindler's List, which is like one of the things I Neither. have to see. It's now on Netflix. Well, I'm like, there goes my excuse. I hated The English Patient, but I saw it when I was like 15. Yeah. So, um... I, I definitely prefer him in this to In Bruges, um, and to... <sighs> I mean, Harry Potter's a bit of a difficult one, because he's uh, playing such a kind it's of weird so different. character. It's so it's so so because I love him in In Bruges. I do really like yeah. him in In Bruges, but I love him in this. Like I've got nothing about Voldemort. This is miles better than Voldemort. Um, His character is miles better. Um, Film wise, I prefer Harry Potter than this. <laughs> I prefer it when he plays Harry in In Bruges. I guess I'll give my vote to that. Although I think he's brilliant yeah. in this. I do. Yeah. But he's a force of nature. In. Yeah, no. You, you know, him going, you're an inanimate object to his wife. I'm just like, yeah, that's, and just his moral, that's, that's the writing, but he did such a good job in acting that. I'm going to say it just nudges for me. Uh, the kid who plays Zero, it's, I, I think it's still his best. Yeah. Cause Georgia, you're, you're, you're a big fan of Spider-Man Homecoming, right? Yeah. Like him and this is still miles better than going, do you really know Peter Parker? You know, yeah, and, yeah, and stuff like that. Not even a, it's not a big enough role to count, really, nah, is it? Nah, I think he's... I mean, that like might change. Sorry? That might change if he is the villain in the next one. It might, um, well, might they, change my opinion They on lead that, towards but... that because they have him get picked up at the end of number two and, like, his parents yeah. don't come for him and you're like, they're building towards bigger things with this guy. 
Yeah, it seems that way. Yeah, so I'd really welcome that. I really hope they give them, they give them the full run. Yeah. Liam? As much as I love Edward Norton and Paul oh, Swinton yeah, no. <laughs> and Jeff Goldblum, Jude Law, any of these, Clayton, any of these cameos, Bill Murray, they're uh, not big enough parts to. Although, although I think we should have given something more to Jude Law when we were talking about the characters. I thought Jude Law did a good job in this. I love Jude Law. He did. He did a very good job. Jude Law is very Marmite to me. Either I love him or I hate him. And in this mm-hmm. one, I was really on board. I thought he did a, there wasn't much from the do, but what there was from the do, he did really well. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. that's the case. With I'm a about lot to. I think I'm about to frustrate everyone. Who's Jude Law? Jude Law is the guy who played the writer when he meets old Zero. Oh, the guy with the glasses? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So he's in The Holiday. I think that was kind of maybe what most people know him from, maybe. Watson in Sherlock Holmes? Yeah. I mean, there's so many oh, versions. In, You've got to be more specific. In, in, the, in Robert, the Robert, Robert Downey Jr. Jr. I've not Robert seen the Downey one with Robert in. Okay, yeah. no, that's fine. He's just, he's just, he was so big for about three years. He was in everything. Yeah. I know the name. I, I he, he's the such name. a good-looking I just, I man. Him, but that's, <laughs> he's beautiful. that's kind of my trouble with all actors. He's kind of like a more I'm... handsome version of Benedict Cumberbatch. Not as good of an actor, but a more handsome version. Oh, I think there's some people that would definitely fight you on that. Well, maybe that's, that's our poll for the week. Who's more handsome, Jude Law in his prime or Ben Benedict, or Benedict Cumberbatch? Cumberbatch. I'll tell you Jude what, Law. Jude Law is seven letters. <laughs> Benedict Cumberbatch, <laughs> Benedict is eight. <laughs> I haven't even got to Cumberbatch fair. yet. To be fair, to kind of sway that argument a little bit, I can picture Benedict Cumberbatch. I can't picture well, Jude Law. just because you don't know who Jude Law is, that's all. He's also in The Talented Mr. Ripley. I've never seen that, but I hear it's oh, really, really good. It is. Yeah. Um, okay, so shall we do the age game? The age game, the age game. Everybody plays the age game. Have we got another sure hour? <laughs> I've, I've said five. I've said, I, okay. I, don't, I don't know who they are, yeah, but we're not gonna I, do, I not told gonna Ellie, limit people. it to five. So I'm going to keep okay. track of who wins well, today. Actually, so we'll see I've who actually, actually wins written, the age game. I've actually written down six people. Oh, six? Okay. I'm going to start keeping we don't track. Have to do all six. Because at the end of the year, I want to do a punishment for whoever comes in last <laughs> in the age game. I'm oh, so glad I'm the one that asks We will give Georgia a... A compensation for the four weeks that she misses. Mm-hmm. We'll figure something out. We'll do it like prorated. Let's see what has to happen. Maybe someone will have to review. Like if it's tell you what, if I finish last, Liam, we can review Greece or something. <laughs> I will That's use. Not punishment. I will have to. How's this for punishment? <laughs> if I lose, I will use one of my picks to pick Greece. Oh, next that year. is a punishment. Oh. I will have to use one of mine to choose a film of your choosing. So it can be the it, your pick, it can be the wild card. My wild card next year goes to you. Oh, okay. that is rough. Yeah, that's a bold thing. All right, so, <laughs> so let's go. What let's do we have? start with Ray Fiennes. Uh, How long ago was this? Two thousand fourteen. What year? Two thousand fourteen. Yeah. Okay. This feels um, a lot older. Than it does. That. It does feel me? older. Yeah, it does. Uh, this film feels like it could have been made in the 80s. I'm going to say I think that's because that's when it's, four. it's set earlier, so it's a bit difficult to... I think it just I, feels I, like I it's been like one of those films even... that's been out forever. I think it just feels like it's um, been out. I'm going to say 48. 54, 48. I was going to go at 42. I feel like I've gone okay. too young there, though. And? He's 52. Hey, it's me. Huh. Next up. Uh, Tony Revolori. Oh, okay, I think I might know this one, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bow out of this response. Um, 21. I, I wish people could see this because wherever someone says a name, Liam's picking up the DVD case, <laughs> like, <laughs> like studying the face. Yeah, <laughs> so Liam, you. there's like 21 and how old do you think? Uh, nine. 19. He's 18. Yeah, I was going to say 17, but 19 wins. So I would have thought he was younger. So yeah. yeah. Next. Um, Saoirse Ronan. 
Okay. Uh, Sersha Ronan? I think she is... Oh, jeez. Because she's deceptive. Oh, because, yeah, because this isn't her best. Lady Bird's her best. She is... Ooh, she's in Little Women as well. Haven't seen it, but yeah, I hear that. Uh, I'm going to say she's... 20. Georgia? 24. Liam's... 25. 25. Oh, uh, she's 20. Hey! Yeah. Oh. Um, yeah, she is very good just in as you decide, Just as you decide to track this, you're doing really, really well. <laughs> like, you're usually really bad at this. No, I'm not. I'm all right. Not. I'm usually spot on. <laughs> I'm all right. Um, so I thought I'd put in Tilda Swinton into here because I thought that would be a fun mm, one to do. Because we can't really go by what we saw. No. I will give us a hint. They brought in the most expensive makeup artist. They said that he usually is quite frugal with his money, but when you're aging <laughs> someone up, you don't want to hire the cheap people for that. Yeah. So spoilers, she's younger than 84. Yes. Here's the thing. I don't know what Tilda Swinton looks like not like that. So I didn't even realize that she'd been aged up, which is credit to the makeup people. But, Have uh, you ever seen Narnia, Lion Watch, Nora? I mean, I've seen say, it. She's the white queen. 43. I'm going to go 47. I'll ballpark that then and go 45. <laughs> She's 54. Oh, wow. Whoa. Honestly, she doesn't look that old in real life. These mm. eyes. Liam oh, would mine. know he met her. He did. He, 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 he doesn't like to bring <laughs> it up too much. That's the thing I like. It's the way she looked at me. She kind of looked me up and down. She was like, hi. I was like, hi, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who hasn't been looked up and down by Tilda Swinton, though? I mean, come on. I <laughs> uh, know. Oh, um, so we'll, we'll do Jeff Goldblum. Jeff Goldblum. There's a guy who's ageless. He is ageless, yeah. yeah. 57. I think you're a touch high. I'm going to go 54. I was going to go 52, so I'll stick there. He's 62. Wow. wow. Come on. Is that yeah. it? Oh, there's one more. So right now, I have three. Liam is two, and Georgia has no score. <laughs> All right. Rub it in. Um, so I just my last one I wrote down was Jude Law. Oh, wow. I've forgotten who Jude Law, do, Jude he's, Law is. He's the young writer. Oh, okay. The guy with the glasses. <laughs> uh, the guy who's not Benedict Cumberbatch. As Liam studies his DVD case. <laughs> I'm going to go 42. Okay. Mm, 38. I'm going, I'm going 40. He's 42. Yes! <laughs> oh. This isn't fair. I didn't even know what the character... Who the, I didn't study them. I wasn't like, okay, <laughs> I was 100% legit. So... On that, too legit to quit. Liam, what is your rating for the Grand Budapest Hotel? Right. Uh, my rating is, and only because um, I love the whole aesthetic of it. I, lo- I love the camera angles. I, lo- I loved a lot of this movie, but I didn't love the movie. Uh, I didn't love the story. Uh, so I'm going to say controversial six. Okay, six. Uh, Georgia. Um, yeah, I'm similar to Liam. It, it was it's pretty. Although I think I need to watch it on a different screen because honestly, the colours weren't popping on my laptop. So I think maybe either that's just a, my laptop's really old. So maybe it was just that. Um, so I didn't get to fully appreciate all of that. Um, but I won't let that hinder it. I trust what you guys say, and that it is really really pretty. Um, and I'm gonna give it a solid four and a half cat's lives out of nine. Oh, out of nine. Okay. <laughs> we, we do things out of 10 on this one. <laughs> but this no, one, but cats guys. have nine 
Okay. I'm going to convert that to five out of ten for the sake of my uh, yeah, scorekeeping. That's, that's exactly what I intended okay. you to do, and it was jokes. <laughs> Cats have nine lives. This one didn't. Uh, <laughs> Ellie. Um, so I loved it. Um, I'm going to give it an eight and a half. Eight and a half? Yep. That's Liam's usual score. Okay. Eight and a half. Mm. <laughs> this is the kind of film, Liam, that as a film studies teacher, I'm supposed to love. Because yeah. it looks it looks really, really pretty. It's absurdist. It's well acted. It's arguably well written. There's some great circular things that happen in it. And if you want to talk about the way you set up a narrative and all that sort of stuff, this doesn't. If you follow any sort of film people on Instagram or things like that, this film gets shown all the time because it's just for like Instagram. This is a perfect movie because any frame can be like like stopped and used as a thing. And I've just got in big capital letters because I didn't want to forget it when I got to this. Clever is not the same as good. No. <laughs> and so it is a beautiful film and it's a clever film. Uh, but I just found myself wanting to be wanting to be I maybe it romanticized a part that doesn't the, the film it romanticized a part of the film that hadn't earned it yet and I I I, I it just was I was just pre-engaged in the wrong thing. Yeah. I think absurdity is great, but you have to have something underneath it to drive it home. Yeah. And I wasn't there enough. At the end of the day, I did love that one scene between the two of them where he's yelling at him. But I did feel that kind of built a little bit out of nowhere. And then it was like, we're best friends forever. And that was it. Um, it's the only bit that kind of seems to have a little bit of heart and a little bit of stakes. Is that is that thing yeah. that you're talking about? So, um, so, yeah, no, maybe a bit more of that would have been. So I'm going seven and a half. I liked it. There's certain bits. The aesthetics are a 10. The set design is a 10. All those things yeah. that I'm like, this is so yeah, exactly. difficult to do is a 10. It's a beautiful yeah. film. And it's well acted. I can't... Fo- who, who gave a bad performance? No one gave a bad performance. No one. Yeah. But the problem is, was the sto- is the story good? And I guess that's my issue. I don't think the story's good. The script is no. fine, but the story's not. Because yeah. I sat I here and went, like and this story. is going to irritate some people <laughs> listening, and maybe even, maybe even Ellie. But I'm going... I sat down as I'm thinking about this and the number, because I had a couple of things. I'm going, did I like this better than Days of Thunder? And I was going, <laughs> no, I had a no. way better time. At da- I'm sorry, everybody out there who's going, oh, I, did. I had a way more fun time with Days of Thunder because I cared about the characters. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't the heart for me. And you can be quirky and pithy and, oh, it's so, that's fine. But at the end of the day, I, I, I have to care. And I, yeah. with the exception of, uh, was it F. Murray Abraham? F. Murray Abraham, who plays old Zero and did a really good job sort of showing me how much he's hurting with the loss of his wife, his child, and of Gustav. I kind of went, that's all that is. So, uh, that's a bow. It's a, you know what this is? It's a very, very pretty bow and a very, very pretty wrapping job on a zany gift that you will use once and then probably <laughs> won't use again. Well, I've watched it <laughs> twice like now. Well much like the pastries, yes. <laughs> so, uh, with that in mind, Liam, all that's left between now and the and, and signing off is going. What are we doing next week? My favorite part next of every week. show. What are we doing next week? Next week, we are doing one of my favorite movies, which I adore and love, even to this day. From the very first time I saw it, The Crow with Brandon. Wow. Okay, I have never seen The Crow, and it's always only the first one. The rest just no, no, that's fine. No, no, we're, we're, this one. Well, it's, it's like the Matrix. Like the first one's brilliant, oh, and the other ones are eh. Yeah. So the Crow, okay, the crow. great, and uh, okay. That's a cult movie. 
It's a cult movie. There's a lot of history behind The Crow. Lots. There's lots of history and definitely discussions and, and urban legends and myths and all sorts of stuff about The Crow yeah. with Jason Lee. Did this come up a couple no, of weeks no, ago? Sorry. No, no, no. River Phoenix. Is it Brandon Lee? Brandon Brand- Lee. Which film is it that River Phoenix is doing when, when he dies? Uh, my Own Private Idaho. Oh, is it? Okay. But with, with Brandon Lee, we're doing The Crow. Very, I did not see this coming. Okay, very interesting. So please join us next week when we look at Liam's wild card choice for the year in The Crow. For best film ever, I've been Ian. I've been Liam. I've been Ellie. And I've been Georgia. And while there are some podcasts out there that come off like cheap cuts, I like to think we're more of a prime fillet. (laughs) We'll see you next time. (laughs) 